Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, there's still more questions that need to be answered. The investigation continues regarding the shooting death of a person authorities say first fired at a Georgia State trooper yesterday. Now, this took place at the site of a controversial police and fire training facility. Law enforcement was doing a clearing operation, a legal operation, removing people illegally occupying a property, and someone on the property as law enforcement came into view, uh, initiated fire. But the group opposed to the training facility, they say they're not convinced. I just want to ask the media and everybody, when you hear the narratives put out about what has happened in this case, don't just buy whatever the police are telling you. We'll get an update and try to figure out all of this. And later in the program, the Atlanta Regional Commission is seeking the public's comment about what else? Transit and mobility. And we remember civil and human rights activist and educator Dr. Rosalind Pope. She was part of the 1960 Atlanta student movement that sought change due to segregation. We were about changing Jim Crow laws that said that we were not allowed to come in and eat where a white person ate or drink with a white person. or We couldn't do anything. We couldn't stay in a hotel. We couldn't go to a white church. I mean, there were all kinds of restrictions that we lived under. We couldn't go to school with white students. We couldn't use uh, good textbooks. We had to use, Mm -hmm. use textbooks. So what we were about ultimate goals had to do with what was published in an appeal for human rights. All that's ahead. But first, as mentioned, there are a lot of questions surrounding exactly what happened yesterday at the site of a planned police and fire training facility for city for the city of Atlanta. And the GBI contends an individual was camped out on the site with other protesters and allegedly fired on officers while they were trying to clear the area. Authorities contend law enforcement authors were Officers returned fire, killing the person, and several others since then have been arrested. WABE Shemaine Cruz has been covering this since yesterday, including the, the scene and the vigil for the protester that followed last night. And Shemaine joins us now in the studio. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. I know that you haven't probably had much sleep since you've been on this. I, I want to begin because we're hearing now that we know, we may know the name of the individual. Now, this is according to the Atlanta Community Press Collective. The person killed yesterday may be identified as Manuel Terrain, but we also know there could be some other identities or names. Uh, I want to begin there. What have you heard about the, the name of this individual? Yes, as of this morning, the man who was fatally shot has not been officially identified. But like you said, the Atlanta Community Press Collective um, issued a statement this morning identifying them as Tortuguita. Mm-hmm. And Shemaine, let's back up a little bit because what do we know in terms of the condition now? We know that that, that an individual had died, but the Georgia State Trooper, 
any update on this individual's injuries? Um, the GBI says the trooper was taken to a local hospital where he under, underwent surgery and was taken to the ICU. Um, the Department of Public Safety issued a statement this morning saying that they will not be releasing the trooper's name because disclosure would, quote, compromise security against criminal or terroristic acts due to retaliation. Um, they say they will provide an update on the trooper status when it becomes available. Now, yesterday, Shemaine's authorities were providing several updates throughout the day, and, and there were some key takeaways from the news conference. Again, as we're going to hear, there are conflicting stories as to exactly what happened. You were to, you were there. What did you hear in terms of what might have happened according to law enforcement? According to law enforcement, they are really pushing um, that this individual fired at officers first and that they fired back in response. Um, they say that for months now they've been trying to clear the forest uh, or the site of protesters there and that the situation has just escalated. Um, other than that, there really hasn't been any more details released about what led up to the shooting, but the investigation is active and ongoing. And to be clear, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, they are leading the investigation on this. I know there's been some calls from other groups saying that perhaps it should be a separate independent agency that conducts this investigation. What do we know? Um, yeah, that's right. The GBI is conducting the investigation, but um, activists around the area are calling for an independent investigation. Um, I went to a vigil last night in Little Five Points. About 100 people or more were there, and they just stood in a circle um, singing, uh, meditating, lighting candles. They brought flowers. Um and from the people, from what I heard, and mm -hmm. the people who spoke up, they said that they are not backing down. Um, they just say that they don't understand how someone who was there protecting the trees and the forest ended up being shot and killed. And they say that this is what they've been saying or fearing all along. Did anyone say or confirm that, yes, indeed, the individual that was killed also had a weapon and did fire? Have you been hearing any of that? The only information that I have on that comes from the GBI, and they say that they did find a handgun at the scene, um, but that's all I know for now. And what did you hear, Shemaine, in terms of what folks had to say about the individual who was killed? Um, as you heard earlier, uh, these protesters uh, really want local media to question what law enforcement is saying about the incident. Um, and someone from the Southern Center for Human Rights said that the people of Atlanta never wanted the facility in the mm -hmm. first place. Um, he mentioned that over the summer, people spoke during public comment at a city council meeting for over 17 hours yeah. opposing this project. Um, and advocates with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund say they plan to file a wrongful death lawsuit mm -hmm. for Tortuguita. And do we know if... That individual, if they were from Atlanta, have we heard from family members? Have you been able to track down any anybody that was related to the person? So I'm still working on that. The only information I have comes from the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Mm -hmm. And they say that this individual spent time between Atlanta and Florida. 
All right. From our WABE newsroom, Shemaine Cruz, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming into the studio. I know you've been you've been up pretty much throughout the night, so thank you. Thank you for having me. And there's a backstory to all of this. And for that, we turn to WABE's Emily Wu Pearson, who has a bit more background on the planned training center site and the protests there. Emily, welcome. Thanks for having me, Rose. Appreciate you taking the time. Let's start with a quick refresher for our listeners who may not understand what we're talking about here. This is a police and fire training site. What is it supposed to include eventually? The area is at the old Atlanta prison farm in South DeKalb County, and the intention is to build an 85-acre, $90 million combined training facility. Um, The reason why people have nicknamed it Cop City is because it does have the plan to include full city blocks, so firefighters and police officers can run through mock training situations simultaneously. There's going to be some green space, and there's also going to be classrooms. And also, let's get some clarity here. This sits... In DeKalb County, but it is an Atlanta City facility. Yes. The old Atlanta prison farm was owned by the city of Atlanta and remained city of Atlanta property throughout the entire expansion of the city in DeKalb County. So it is one isolated parcel of Atlanta in DeKalb County. And this forest, because it is a forest, uh, has been occupied by what people deem as protesters, also known as the forest defenders. We've talked to them on this program, uh, also blocking development of the area. What do we know about the activists or the groups? Because there's more than just one who are opposed to it. What do we know about the group where this person who was killed yesterday was a part of? That's a great question. There are it's it's a pretty, um, I would say, robust coalition of environmentalists. There are. Um, people who are focused specifically on preserving Entrenchment Creek, which is it bisects the two parcels of land that have been involved in this um, tension between the cops and the protesters. There are people who are advocating for um, more community resources and taking the money from a project like this and investing it into more safety nets, more school programs, that kind of stuff. There are the tree sitters who are people who are physically living in the forest mm-hmm. and putting their bodies in front of things like the um, police raids and the different types of contractors who have come to knock down trees. And then there are local like neighbors and community mm-hmm. members who come out to the park every once in a while and will do cleanup days or uh, educational walkthroughs of the forest. Mm-hmm. And Emily, this was not the first time there was some type of confrontation with authorities. I believe just a few weeks ago, there was another raid where police arrested protesters and then charged them with domestic terrorism. But something changed after that. Do we know if those charges were dropped? The charges maintain, but originally these protesters were held without bail. And then the ACLU got involved and then these protesters were released on bail. They are still going to be seen in front of a mm-hmm. court for these domestic terrorism charges. So that was in December. Throughout the last year, there have been multiple interactions between protesters and police at this particular site. Every couple of weeks, the police will come and try to clear out protesters from the area. That's uh, had some altercations, including protesters throwing rocks and bottles at different first responders different types of verbal altercations between the two groups. Mm -hmm. There are accusations of the police using different types of chemical gases and rubber bullets. So throughout the last year, different tensions have been boiling. 
Have you been able to confirm any of that in terms of the allegations from the, the groups and then the allegations from law enforcement about their actions? It seems like, it, and of course, if you hear and watch social media and what you read, you hear a lot of different allegations going back and forth. Have you been able to confirm any of this? The accusations, for example, of the protesters setting fire to construction equipment, that I've been able to confirm. You can go to the area and see a burned Mm -hmm. truck and a trailer. There are videos of heavily armored police and large SWAT vans Mm -hmm. in the area that protesters have taken. Um, Sometimes when you go out there yourself, you can see the police in that gear as well. So there are... Nuggets of truth in both. Sure. And if we go back, and folks might remember, I believe it was 17 hours, I could be wrong, 17 hours of public comment when the city council was voting on all of this. Um, We know that Governor Kemp and Mayor Dickens have put out statements, but are you hearing anything? Are you hearing anything in terms of what happened yesterday that there might even be a reversal in terms of looking at or making a decision should this training facility even continue? What are you hearing? So far, nothing on a reversal. Um, The proposed training facility is still at the state that it's been in, um, looking at permits and applying for the appropriate permits. The parcel of land that the tree sitters have been on the most is what used to be Entrenchment Creek Park. Mm -hmm. That area has had a couple of different developments in the last couple of weeks, um, the most recent of which being uh, Judge Stacey Heydrich in DeKalb County said that even though there is an ongoing lawsuit about whether or not DeKalb County could have given, sold the land to a private real estate company, um, people are not allowed in the park. Mm -hmm. And so the parcel of land that the police training facility is intended to be built on, no, no status change. Entrenchment Creek Park, what used to be Entrenchment Creek Park, has had a couple of things change mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks. WABE reporter Emily Wu Pearson has been following this. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. Now, coming up in a moment, a conversation with the Atlanta Regional Commission about what else? A new transit and mobility survey. But first, I want to get to some other news. 
maybe not some good news for the Atlanta's airport, because once again, Atlanta's airport takes the top spot for the most weapons, guns caught at security checkpoints nationwide in 2022. Now, Transportation Security Administration officials say officers caught 448 firearms at Hartsfield-Jackson International. That number one spot was earned even with a decrease in numbers since 2021. In other news, enrollment in the University of Georgia system is declining. That means funding cuts for most of the Georgia's public universities and colleges next year is on the way, as we hear from our politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. Budget writers use a formula to decide how much money each school should get. That formula heavily weighs credit hours, which basically reflects enrollment. Chancellor Sonny Perdue told lawmakers the system is facing a demographic cliff. There's a lot of competition among our neighboring states for our Georgia students. In fact, one of the things I'm concerned is we actually are experiencing an outmigration of Georgia students to outside the state. Purdue says he's committed to reversing that trend. For now, he says many schools will have to do more with less. 20 of 26 institutions will lose formula funding next year. Still, this budget increases the system's funding overall. That's mostly to fund raises for state workers, including in higher ed. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And speaking of education, Governor Brian Kemp's budget proposal includes restoring funding to the state's HOPE scholarship. Martha Daughter reports the plan would undo cuts made to the program back in 2011. HOPE originally covered the full cost of tuition at Georgia public colleges for high school students with a B average or better. But by 2011, demand for the program outpaced lottery revenues, which fund the scholarships. So then Governor Nathan Deal approved a plan where students who had at least a B average in high school will get 90 percent of tuition covered through HOPE. Full tuition scholarships were reserved for the highest achievers. Now Governor Kemp has proposed restoring full coverage for students with a B average or better. He's asking lawmakers to put $61 million toward the effort. Like many states, Georgia has reduced funding for public colleges over the years, resulting in higher costs for families. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And now this special from our WABE newsroom. This spring, the Georgia Supreme Court is preparing to take up a lawsuit challenging the state's six-week abortion ban. Now, after the law took effect last fall, clinics that provide abortions have had to adjust to the restrictions. As we hear from WABE's Jess Mador, she spent time with some providers and patients at the center of Georgia's battle over abortion access. Tracy Wesley sits at a computer in her tiny office at Feminist Women's Health Center in DeKalb County. Today is a clinic day, a surgical abortion, medical pill abortion day. She pulls up the day's patient schedule. The sun isn't even up yet. I'm printing a list for the day, how many patients we have. I bet you they got at least 40 folks on here. This clinic provides abortions three days a week. Fridays and Saturdays are the busiest. The radio clipped to Wesley's yellow safety vest crackles with the voice of a security guard outside the brick building. Security advised me we've got three patients already waiting in the parking lot, so I'm going to head upstairs and start getting them up and getting them in. Security is Wesley's number one concern. She's a retired Gwinnett County police officer. Before that, she served in the military. Her experience comes in handy working at the clinic, she says, because abortion days bring a handful of anti-abortion protesters. It's always the same few people. 
They stand on the curb with a speaker. Wesley trains her security team to be vigilant and keep protesters away from patients. The biggest thing is do not engage with them. Because they're going to say things. They're going to poke the bear. They're going to try to get a response out of you. She stays mostly at the clinic entrance while security monitors the parking lot below. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all this morning? Good. You have an appointment? I do. After Wesley's initial check-in, the patients go inside to register. And it's during the ultrasound they find out how far along they actually are. How far along in their pregnancies? Georgia's cutoff is about six weeks. Since the law's been in effect, front office supervisor Antoinette, who doesn't want to give her last name out of concern for her safety, says they turn away an average of five to seven patients every abortion day. We can't care for people who are over six weeks because most women don't know that they're six weeks and up or pregnant in the first place. And sometimes patients aren't aware of the law. Those who are too far along get counseling and information about abortion access in nearby states. All right, I got room for two cars, four people, two cars, four people. Every surgical abortion patient is required to come with a driver who also picks them up after the procedure. What type of vehicle did you drive today? What color? This continues all day. Wesley checks in patients and their drivers one by one. The cars mostly have Georgia plates, but other states too, Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana, Ohio, and Mississippi. That's where the next patient is from. To get to the clinic, she says she and her friend drove overnight. So we had to leave like around 12, 12.30. No later than one, though. Mississippi enacted a so-called trigger law after the U.S. Supreme Court decision last summer overturning Roe v. Wade. Now abortion is allowed there only when a woman's life is in danger or in cases of rape reported to law enforcement. It's completely banned. The Mississippi patient says she's relieved she was able to travel to Atlanta for an abortion, but wishes she didn't have to. I feel like it should be offered closer because some people don't have a way to drive five hours or eight hours. You know, you just don't never know what somebody's situation is. Maybe can go ahead. I've got room for two cars, four people. Two cars, four people on the way up. Good copy. I'll be at the top of the hill. Wesley says she loves what she does at Feminist Women's Health Center. I'm very passionate about what I do here because I'm a woman and it affects me like it affects everybody else. She tries to comfort abortion patients and make their visits a little easier. Wesley is quick to offer them a kind word. I can see how it hits them in their spirit and I see the tears welling up in their eyes. You're going to be all right. I said, please know this one incident is not going to determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. Things happen. But from this, take the lesson. And that's it. And then I asked him if I can give him a hug. Since the six-week ban took effect, Wesley says it's been tough turning so many patients away. Now the Georgia Supreme Court is expected to take up a lawsuit challenging the ban this spring. Jess Mador, WABE News. Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, some of you right now who are listening to me, you're probably sitting in traffic somewhere. If you are, I hope you get to moving soon. I'm going to send some good vibes your way. And we know for years now, Metro Atlanta has been one of the fastest growing areas in the nation. 
What does that mean? Well, how about this? In 2022, nearly 65,000 people moved here, which means, and we would say here, we're talking about the 11 county region. Now the population is up to 5.1 million and all y'all want to drive, at least a good portion of y'all. Now, this is all according to the Atlanta Regional Commission, we refer to as the ARC. So let's try and do the math here. As the population grows, the more traffic there's to be expected on the roads. Don't get mad at me. So right now, the ARC is working to update its regional transportation demand management plan, also known as Mobility Connections, a plan for expanding opportunity. And guess what? They want your feedback on the current transportation issues through an online survey. I can hear you all now heading to the your keyboards. So joining me now to talk about all this is Roz Tucker, the Managing Director of Mobility Services for the Atlanta Regional Commission. Roz, welcome. Hello, Rose. It's nice to be back with you. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I appreciate it. Look, we love folks moving to Atlanta, but everybody wants to drive and everybody wants transit their way. <laughs> yes, indeed. We are working hard to become less car-centric of a region. <laughs> less car-centric. What, what should that look like through your lens? Less car-centric. Oh. That's really multi-pronged. You know, um, it, it does rely on a number of things, uh, really having uh, policy and initiatives like incentives, uh, connectivity, of course, because you do need to have transit options uh, mm-hmm. in your community. So all of these things play a part together. Our corporations, you know, supporting, uh, you know, good travel usage of their employees and Uh, making decisions at the policy level, uh, transit options I talked about. And then one of the biggest things I would say is really the commuter choice Mm -hmm. is just really modifying our travel behavior uh, as we have those options made available to us. So let's talk about what we can change or what you all hope you can change. You talk about behavior. But what you can't always change is infrastructure because Atlanta is only so big and there are only so many corridors that can, some say, that can be developed. So is, through your lens, is the, is the region really, from an infrastructure standpoint, a land standpoint, equipped to handle all these initiatives and everything else that we're going to talk about in a moment? Because you can have great plans. You can even change consumer behavior. But if you don't have the infrastructure, it doesn't work. That's a good question, Rose. I will say that a lot of people are doing a lot of great work to further develop the infrastructure uh, to provide greater opportunities for commute options, uh, inclusive of transit. Mm -hmm. But we also know that transit's not the only option uh, that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some people are able to live close to their jobs where they could utilize other methods such as, you know, biking. Mm -hmm. We've seen uh, this expansion of trails across the region and, uh, you know, and look forward to within the next, uh, you know, five to 10 years having pretty much connectivity across the region where you could hop on your bike if if that's something that works for the individual. But there's also uh, the the walking mm-hmm. ability, if, if that is there, we're seeing more uh, places where you can live, work, and play in that community. I think that is wonderful. We know everywhere uh, we don't see that, but we are seeing it a lot more. And even mm-hmm. outside of the city, we're seeing that. And then, of course, uh, we have the other choices of carpooling, 
riding with a friend or colleague, uh, we also have van pooling as an option. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this, Rose. One of the greatest shifts that we've seen in our region, we don't see telework as a commute option, but it certainly is because what it does, it minimizes Mm -hmm. uh, the need to put a vehicle on the road. And so we consider uh, telework as, as well as one of the great strategies in our toolbox uh, to help with the congestion issue. Of course, we know that everyone cannot telework. Mm-hmm. We have our essential workers. We have our shift workers uh, and those who are, you know, uh, having to be in the service industry. So mm-hmm. we certainly have a lens on the fact that everyone cannot telework. But we do want to encourage those who can. Uh, and we've seen a great shift in the region to teleworking. But the other issue, too, is that for when we talk about this region, the Atlanta region, because it's not just the city of Atlanta. I think I mentioned, mentioned 11 counties. You know, I've, I, I remember, I'll never forget this. I, re, I received an email from a, a gentleman who said, you know, I had a great job. He was working in IT. He lived in, I think it was Douglasville somewhere. But the job was way up north around Alpharetta. And he felt like he couldn't take the job because of their concerns about him getting to work on time. He had to be at work at like at seven in the morning, you know, and being able to get to work. There was no public transportation. I mean, you know, there's no public transportation I know of that can get you from Douglasville to Alpharetta. So if we're talking about from a regional standpoint, connecting, getting folks connected through all these 11 counties, that's, is that at the top of the issue then when we talk about what's impacting Metro Atlanta right now? Absolutely. Connectivity uh, is is uh, at the top of the list for all who are engaged in this conversation. I know that our transit operators across the region have been working diligently uh, and they work all work together uh, seamlessly through the ATL, uh, the planning work that the ARC is doing. Uh, all that happens even from uh, the, the, the state perspective around the commute. There are so many people at the same table having this very conversation that you and I are having day in and day out to really work through solutions. And we've seen uh, some really good momentum across mm-hmm. the region, and we look forward to continuing to see that momentum. And, and that's why this survey is so important, because... Yeah. Those kinds of responses that we hear from the people and, you know, the details about where they're trying to go, we can always share that information uh, with all those who are at the table to make these amazing decisions that make our region an even greater place to live and work. Well, this transportation demand management plan, for our listeners who are not familiar, take a little bit further. What is this? Essentially, what transportation... Uh, demand management is. It's it's really a key set of strategies uh, that seeks to engage and influence commuters uh, to select a commute choice other than driving alone. And I talked about some of the things that that can look like. Of course, transit is one of those ways, and it's, a, it's certainly a big way. But there's also carpooling, van pooling. Uh, you'll see a lot of companies that have their own shuttles, across the region. Granted, a lot of them are the larger corporations, but a lot of corporations do have their own shuttles and they'll pick their employees up from the transit stop and bring them to the office. And then, of course, there's walking, biking, and, of, and of course, one of the, the, the latest 
uh, strategies that has really skyrocketed has been teleworking. And so there are a number of ways that folks can uh, mitigate driving alone. Uh, it's also good for the air quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the choices that we have are shaped around also route time. You know, something that we tend to do here in the region, we all seems like, and I, and I could say this from, you know, the area that I live in, it seems like we all leave at the same time. And so maybe there could be more staggered times. Uh, a lot of companies do offer flex time and um, maybe we don't all have yeah, to be in the office folks, at 8 o'clock. Yeah, but Raj, you know, for folks trying to get their coffee in the morning or folks trying to get their <laughs> beloved pooch to, you know, doggy daycare, everybody leave at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> so Absolutely. why are you all choosing? So you're updating this plan now because of the population growth that's expected? No, or continue? This, okay. So as a planning organization, the ARC is the Metropolitan Planning Organization. We are required to update our plans every three to five years. And this particular plan, we last updated in 2015. And so uh, it was time was now. The time was now to update the plan. We uh, kicked it off in 2021. And uh, so we're now in uh, phase, really the final phase of the plan is uh, this is our second survey that we've rolled out. We rolled one out in 2022, mm-hmm. uh, and this will be our second survey to the region. We had great response. Uh, over 4,000 people responded uh, last year, and so this is our second um, version of the survey to hear from the region. And that information is going to help us to um, make determinations in terms of the things that we want to include in the plan. And and one of the things I'll say that we've seen, uh, Rose, is that the shift for our warehouse workers, we know there's such a demand Mm -hmm. uh, for goods and services across the nation, but especially across our region. Uh, We're a fruitful region. And with that expansion of workers, uh, being able to get to these jobs is very important. And one of the study parts of the study that we've done is around equity. We did an equity analysis to really take a look at uh, income, employment, and social profile. And we've identified some opportunities around further supporting shift workers and low-wage workers across the region and creating better connectivity uh, for them to get to those jobs that support all of us on a day-to-day basis. I, I'm curious because with the the questions on the survey, and y'all are going to take that those findings, I'm, for our listeners, what specific type of questions are you asking, though? We're asking about their commute, mm-hmm. um, you know, what their commute looks like, uh, their travel time, how long does it take for them to get to work, and some of our uh, latest studies, you'll see typical answers of folks on average commuting roughly between 15 and 25 miles one way to work. Well, we want to know, has that expanded? Has that increased? Are people moving out further in the region? We know that there is also another indicator of the commute and uh, something that influences all of our communities where we have to live. Mm-hmm. And we've heard a lot of conversation about the cost of housing and mm-hmm. people having to move a little further out uh, to have a bit more affordability. And so we want to understand uh, what that looks like and how the commute is being impacted for uh, the folks across the region because of that shift. And just really understanding through the data 
what that shift looks like in 2023. And we should note the survey, they need to take it by tomorrow, by January 20th, correct? Yes, they have until the 20th to take the survey. And y'all still giving out gift cards to the first 50? I'm sure the first 50 have gone, right? <laughs> Hopefully they have. <laughs> I'm very hopeful that they have. However, there is also an additional drawing mm-hmm. for um, just a, a pot for those who do take the survey so they could potentially be a part of that group. So it's not too late to take that survey. and uh, You, you have should the, have made it 125. <laughs> That would have been wonderful. <laughs> Let me ask you, as you said, you all are required to do this. What, what did you learn from the last time? What was that key takeaway from the last time you all had, did this? One of the key takeaways from our uh, the 2013, granted, I will say that I was fairly new uh, to the ARC at that time, um, but just the general data from that was, at that time, van pools were really, really a big deal And the region really wanted us to take a look at how we could further impact and support uh, the usage and the needs for more van pools across the the region. Uh, Now, that has shifted somewhat. We have seen a resurgence of van pools, which is amazing, uh, in the region. However, um, that has not been uh, the prevailing thought during this cycle. But it was a Mm -hmm. very important piece of you know, back in 2013. And then with this expected population growth, well, all these folks want to move to Atlanta and the Atlanta region. And and I, now, first of all, to all y'all moving here, good luck in trying to find a place to live if you don't know where you're going to live because <laughs> housing, that's a whole different story. And also leave your cars at home. Um, with this expected population growth in Atlanta and these 11 uh, counties here, is it crucial that now the, those shareholders and, and, and all the folks who, who need to be the stakeholders, everyone who needs to be involved here, if they don't do something now starting to get a handle on this, what is it going to look like, you think, in maybe, I don't know, 10 years? Five. Let's go five. Yeah, I think that it's, it's imperative at this time that we continue to work together, uh, local governments, transportation, businesses, community partners, and Uh, us as commuters really work together uh, to solve uh, this issue and not only to solve, but to really initiate uh, strategies. And and I I will say, I think that we've come, um, we've come around greatly and we've grown immensely. And and one of the main things too, if you think about our air quality, Mm -hmm. our air quality in the region is better than it's ever been. It's better than it's been in 30 years, Rose. And so folks are uh, in big ways doing their job uh, to play a part in this. However, we are continuing to grow, and that's a really good problem. But as we continue to grow, we have to bring more people along in this conversation to be a part of uh, what we call congestion mitigation mitigation and uh, PDM, if you will. Do you all, I know you when you make these recommendations and you hope that the folks, the policymakers and everybody who's sitting at that table, that they read this. But if you had, if this, if this was Roz Tucker, if, if they said, Roz, your top priorities, this is what we're going to implement. Would it be trying to have more light, light rail, rapid rail from counties to county? I, what would be that one key, 
I guess, component that could really, really then lead this region to all those other great things you just talked about the last 15 minutes? I think for us, it, it is the toolbox because there are a number of strategies that can support uh, congestion mitigation, and certainly light rail would be one of them, but there are also other things that could be done uh, across the region. And, and sometimes, depending on the community itself, uh, if it's a very walkable community and jobs are close by, uh, just making sure that there uh, is ease of movement so that people can get around in that in that area. So I, I think that for each community, we would need to really look at what is available mm-hmm. and what those options are and how we can maximize uh, the tools in the toolbox to support uh, movement in that community. And certainly, of, of course, transit is a, is a big one. And, you know, I would I would dance to see it across all of our we service the 20 county area. uh, And that's a that's a large geographical area. And and we know it would take a lot to to be able to do that. But I think within our respective communities, there are particular things that we can do in our corridors Mm -hmm. uh, to support transportation demand management. I will say the city of Atlanta uh, set up a TDM ordinance. Uh, about two years ago, actually just before uh, the pandemic, mm-hmm. and uh, the city council fully on board and supporting and incentivizing companies uh, to provide these commute choices for their employees and also um, allowing them to be supported by our program. We have a broader program. You've heard me talk about Georgia Commute Options. Mm-hmm. And having employers across the region utilize the free services, in fact, of Georgia Commute Options to assist uh, with strategies within their organizations uh, to create a better commute for their employees. And so I think all of these things being done in tandem help to create uh, a better commute for all of us across the region. I think you'd be happy to know that uh, members of the Closer Look team, we're all very diverse in how we get to work. Uh, ride share, bikers, Daniel's on that bike, Kevin Rinker when he bikes, Tiffany who's new to the, she drives, but she's trying to change that. Uh, Roz, how do you commute to work? I do use the express bus. Mm. The ATL. We have proof of that. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. The ATL is awesome. You know, you can get work done on the express bus or you could choose to, to listen to your favorite. I could listen to you on my podcast. <laughs> so I love it. I love the ATL. And Good answer. Express Good answer. Bus. And yeah. again, folks, that survey, that online survey, how do they take it? And again, they have till tomorrow. They'll have until, uh, yes, tomorrow to take uh, the online survey. And you can find that survey. Let me give you the website for that survey here. Can I just go to ARC something? You can go to ARC, yes, <laughs> and it's the Atlanta Regional TDM Plan, ARCTDMPlan.org. That's ARCTDMPlan.org. All right, Roz Tucker, the Managing Director of Mobility Services, the Atlanta Regional Commission, and we've been talking about the Regional Transportation Demand a Management Plan, Mobility Connections, a plan for expanding opportunity we appreciate you taking the time. I'm very interested in hearing what the survey will reveal this time around. 
We look forward to providing that information. And thank you so much, Rose. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. We appreciate you, Roz. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. They were a big part of this country's civil rights movement. The Atlanta University Center students back in 1960 formed the Atlanta Student Movement after the Greensboro sit-ins. Now, AUC students Lonnie King, Julian Bond, and Joseph Pierce came together and formed the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights, and they recruited other AUC students. Now, as the student groups was forming, the officials back then with the various institutions, they had some caution for the students. And these students attended Atlanta University Center, Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, Morris Brown, Atlanta University, and the Interdenominational Theological Center. Among those students was Ross Pope, who was attending Spelman College. Now, back in 2018, I spoke with those former students, including Pope. She recalled how then Spelman College president, Dr. Albert E. Manley, had concerns. But still, the students said, you know what, we're going to come together anyway. I suppose it was normal. He had a a board of trustees to answer to. He had students' parents to answer to. He had uh, uh, church people to answer to. It was not going to be a popular Mm -hmm. activity. It was interesting hearing Lonnie because I was in Yates and Milton the day after uh, the students at North Carolina had protested. The Greensboro Four. The Greensboro Four. It was, it came out in the paper, their protest, the description came out in the paper on the 22nd of February. This was the 23rd when I was in Yates and Milton, and there were Lonnie and Julian. I didn't remember Joe Pierce at the time I was there, but I was there seething uh, with anger. I was uh, very much uh, unhappy about being back in Atlanta because I had been in Paris the previous year as a Merrill Scholar, and I had known real freedom. And I felt that I had been reshackled. I, I had been constrained again. You know, everything that I had experienced the year before was gone. It, it just disappeared. And so I was there uh, bemoaning my fate. And uh, Lonnie came over, and uh, it might have been Julian. They both came, but one of them said, uh, have you heard about the Greensboro Four? And I said, yes, I've heard about them. And so... Uh, I think we need to do a similar kind of activity. We we need to join them so in this protest. Yeah. Oh yes, mm-hmm. I was I was more on board than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> now, from this collective came what they published: an appeal for human rights. Pope was the lead writer, and it appeared in nearly every Atlanta newspaper. It was called a declaration of war against racism and discrimination. The appeal, as Lonnie King wrote, quote, condemns in specific detail the injustices of segregation and demands that it be ended. We were about changing Jim Crow laws. 
that said that we were not allowed to come in and eat where a white person ate or drink with a white person. or We couldn't do anything. We couldn't stay in a hotel. We couldn't go to a white church. I mean, there were all kinds of restrictions that we lived under. We couldn't go to school with white students. We couldn't use uh, good textbooks. We had to use, mm-hmm. use textbooks. So what we were about ultimate goals had to do with what was published in an appeal for human rights and it had to do with jobs and Mm -hmm. education and housing and voting and the same things we are working with now we were working with then. same issues the very same issues after graduating from spelman with a major in music and minors in french and english pope earned a master's and doctorate spending her professional career as a professor and scholar and we talked about this in terms of overcoming segregation and Jim Crow, I think it was a tremendous breakthrough. I think the fact that we summoned the courage, and not only summoned the courage, but also uh, at the same time convinced six college presidents who didn't want us to do any of this mm-hmm. that we would make a statement, we would let Atlanta know what we were protesting, and we would move forward with their permission, and they gave it based on the fact that we were able to outline for the nation Mm. what our grievances were and what needed to be addressed in order for us to be full citizens of the country. Rosalind Pope died this past Tuesday in Texas, surrounded by family. She was 84 years old. Now, the entire 2018 interview with students then, they were students then from 1960, can be found on our website. We're back in a moment. That's it for this edition. Tiffany Griffith is our Closer Look supervising producer alongside producers LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? 
This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.